Welcome to the Trinity Student Managed Fund podcast with me, Will O'Callaghan. On this podcast, I speak to leaders in the world of finance, business and technology to give us students a better insight into careers we may wish to pursue. This episode is sponsored by Elkstone. Elkstone is a family office managing the wealth of its principals with a focus on real estate, venture capital and alternatives, as well as a multi-family office regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland which provides both access to co-investing in their principal's investment portfolios and wealth management services to many of Ireland's entrepreneurs and high net worth individuals. Elkstone has a strong pedigree of backing many high growth tech companies and was a seed stage backer of several high profile Irish startups, including Unicorn Let's Get Checked, Flipdish, Soapbox Labs and Mana. The guest today is Brian Meehan. Brian is the executive chair and former CEO of Blue Bottle Coffee. After graduating from Trinity College, he started his career working for Guinness, where he became a brand manager. Brian completed an MBA at Harvard Business School before starting his own company, Fresh and Wild, an organic food store in London. After selling Fresh and Wild to Whole Foods, Brian started Nude Skincare, all natural skincare products. Brian sold Nude Skincare to LVMH and later joined Blue Bottle Coffee as CEO before selling the company to Nestle in 2017. I hope you enjoyed this very insightful conversation with Brian. Brian, welcome to the Trinity SMF podcast. I'm very excited for our conversation today. Very excited to be here, Will, with you. It is clear from your bio that you are a very successful entrepreneur, having scaled three companies to date. So I'm wondering, growing up, did you always want to run your own business? And what was it that sparked your entrepreneurial spirit? Yeah, I think I grew up in an entrepreneurial household. My dad um, started off in the fashion trade in the 70s, and he was importing Captain America jeans um, and had a store opened up. We were living in, in London at the time, and he had the rights to Captain America jeans, and he had a, a fashion store in London. And he opened a second store in Dublin, um, probably 1974, 73. And we moved from London across to Dublin. And so he wanted to move back home with my mum. And that all went pear-shaped in 1978. The banks took over the business. We lost our house. Um, we almost got kicked out of school, except for our headmaster was very generous about giving our family scholarships to stay on in the school. And so my dad went through a low in 1978, 1979, um, got back up on his feet again, started another business importing motor components of all things from Asia. And I became his sales rep in 1985, 1986. And I'll never forget like the first day we were starting the business, it was January and 1986. I was driving down to like Rath Downey or somewhere like that to sign a, a deal with a tow bar guy. And I was listening to Phil Linnett had just died that morning. And that was kind of the start of the business. And my dad sort of was working at the same time and trying to start his business. So I was his sort of vehicle to be able to make money. Um, I would just like go and, and, and sales rep for him and do all the stuff behind the scenes. And then he was able to leave his business full time. And I just helped him. And I, I would go to lectures at Trinity College, joined Trinity College, September 86, I think it was. And um, in September of 1986, I started with BESS, or it was ESS in those days. And I was quite introverted and it was a very easy thing for me to do. It's like go to my lectures and then disappear the minute my lecture finished. 
um, and go and work for my dad, um, which is great in terms of experience. It was terrible in terms of integrating myself at Trinity College. It wasn't until I was in my second year that I actually learned how to be a student at Trinity properly down at the path. But I, I, I suppose entrepreneurship has always been in my blood in a very small way. And then when I graduated from Trinity, I actually then thought, well, I've done all this work with my dad and I've earned good money and I'm, everyone says I should be an entrepreneur. But I kind of felt like I needed some kind of, I needed to know what professional work was like. So I got a job with the Guinness Group, which is now Diageo. And they gave me a job in sales. And then I became a brand manager in Scotland, selling Scotch whiskey, like Bell's whiskey to the Scots, which they all got a great kick out of seeing me arrive around working men's clubs in Perthshire, Scotland, trying to sell them Bell's whiskey. Um, I is the Irish laddie coming in again, trying to sell us Bell's whiskey. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And I realized that, you know, I really just wanted to get it out of my system that uh, I was afraid of just being an entrepreneur by myself and not having, you know, so Guinness taught me about time management and presentation skills and, you know, all the sort of skills that a business business person needs to, to learn um, but I realized after about five years I met my wife at Guinness um, that I should go off and do a, an MBA and that's when I really got serious about being an entrepreneur. Thanks for that insight Brian certainly a very interesting story and background could you talk about your experience at Harvard then and how did your time there help you as you progressed throughout your career? Yeah um, Harvard was again that was daunting for me to go to Harvard Business School Um, Because a lot of people who go there come from management consulting or banking and, you know, have a lot more finance experience than than I did have. And so it was hard work. It was 1996. I just got married and uh, I just immersed myself in, you know, just the the quality of people and, and the level of work that was required was immense. But I must say it was all new stuff and I was really enjoying learning about, I just knew I needed, I kind of had this thing in my head that people knew more about business than I did. And I just had to get that out of my system. And it just gave me a ton of confidence, you know, that when I sat in front of someone from a management consulting company that I knew when they were bullshitting and I knew, you know, when they weren't bullshitting basically. And um, there's a lot of BS in that industry. From Harvard then you you started your own, venture fresh and wild so could you speak about the the company how the idea came about and particularly why did you decide to to start your own business instead of maybe pursuing a more traditional route such as finance out of harvard okay great question um so what i did at harvard is something that's available at a lot of business schools now it's called a search fund and what you do is you decide that you want to buy a business and there's a network of search fund investors. And I can give you a link maybe at the end of the podcast or something um, that you can, for people to find out more about search funds. They're in London, they're in Barcelona, they're in Stanford, Harvard. Like there's a big network of, of search funds now. And so there's a network of investors. This is again, going back to 1998. You first of all decide, I want to buy a business. And then you put yourself out there and you meet the investors. And what they do is you, you have about 10 to 15 people who will give you, you know, twenty thousand dollars for an option to invest in the business that you buy? So they give you, you know, at the time it was like two hundred thousand dollars. It's now probably half a million dollars, and you take that half a million dollars. So twenty five people giving twenty people giving you twenty five thousand dollars, and you go and you use that money to search for a business to buy. 
and then you you know you select your industry and type of characteristics you're looking for in that industry you try and find a business that's for sale and then once you agree to buy a business then the search fund investors have a right of first refusal to invest in that business so it's great for the investors because for 25 grand they get an option on you and it's great for the entrepreneur because they get a ton of money at the beginning to pay for legal expenses a small salary um, they can take you know one to two years trying to find a, biz- a business to buy and it's a support system and you can get mentored by these people so that's called a search fund process and i did that the only thing i did wrong about that is i ended up kind of more or less buying a startup than buying they like you to buy like a you know a business that's mature with steady cash flows that you can leverage mm-hmm. i ended up buying um, the beginnings of an organic food store company in London called Fresh and Wild. It was a health food store called Wild Oats and a, another store called Freshlands. And we put the two of them together, it had about 5 million sterling of revenue. And we called it Fresh and Wild. And I did it with another person from the industry as a partner who had experienced working at whole, a place like Whole Foods in America. And um, I decided that London... Um, America sort of was expanding very rapidly in the area of natural foods back in 1998, um, 1999. But Europe was was many years behind and the type of retail formats were kind of old health food stores like you'd see in Rath Mines or Greystones or something like that. But there wasn't sort of a, you know, a chain or, or a brand of natural food stores like you had in America. So you, you, know, you had a lot of different brands. In America, and Whole Foods was the market leader. There's another one called Wild Oats. And so, yeah, I decided to do that. You know, it was very new being a CEO and raising money. I was pretty green, but I had a good support network. And I think that business was, it did okay. Like we grew it to about $40 million in revenue. It was a big hit in the time, at the time in London, you know, the tastes around natural foods were changing. And it was a very stylish store, Notting Hill and Camden, made a lot of celebs coming in and out. Um, and then Whole Foods bought the business uh, in 2004 and that was my first sort of taste of success I suppose. That's uh, very interesting to hear how it came about through search funds and thanks for explaining how kind of the search fund process works and in terms of your experience with Fresh and Wild then wh- what are the kind of key business lessons that stand out from your experience building and operating the company? Gosh great question well there's this guy called Bill Egan, William Egan. Um, he was one of the first investors in FedEx, very successful American investor based in Boston. And he came to look at the business. He didn't invest, but he turned to me at the time and he said, Brian, like, this is a type of business that can get the better of good management. And what he meant by that is that it was so operationally intensive that even good management would fail. And he's like, listen, Brian, over my experience of my lifetime investing, I've invested in some great businesses with some lousy management and it's been a success Um, or not lousy, but sort of middle of the road management. And then I've had businesses with brilliant management, but the characteristics of the business operational characteristics were kind of high. It's like a seesaw. And so you're fighting that no matter how good you are, you're going to fight that this is a very difficult business to run. And it was a very difficult business to run with low multiples, you know, sort of very low barriers to entry. But the only thing I'd say against what Bill Egan said to me at the time was that I was very passionate about the subject matter, which is, you know, natural foods, organic foods. At the time, we were fighting genetically modified foods back in 1998, 1999, um, and banning them in Europe. So 
I felt very passionate about the subject matter, which I would always advise people who are looking to be entrepreneurs is like love the area you're getting into. Um, I know some entrepreneurs who are willing to work in a stainless steel plant and get excited about that. I just couldn't do that. Yeah. Right. Um, so everything I've done from fresh and wild to nude skincare to blue ball coffee, there were kind of things that I just, when I told people what I did, I was, my face lit up. And I just don't think I could have said, you know, I'm in a ball bearing business in Preston and it does, you know, 35 million in revenue and 3 million EBITDA. It's like, I would just, I would fall asleep telling a friend that I was doing that. I wanted to do something with my life and make an impact. So I think there's a balance between, you know, picking a business that has strong operational characteristics and doing something that you really enjoy. And, you know, my third business, which is Blue Ball Coffee, that had both, it had great characteristics and it was something I was really passionate about. Um, Fresh and Wild was one of those businesses that was super, super hard to run because it's grocery. There's only so much you can charge for cabbage. Okay. Thanks, Brendan, for that. And it's great to get the insight on the advice you got from Bill Egan back when you, you were at Fresh and Wild and how you did grow it to ultimately sell it to Whole Foods, as you mentioned. And I did want to, to ask a question just on the sale to Whole Foods. As you know, the Trinity SMF is quite focused on, on careers in finance and a lot of students in the SMF do look to go into investment banking at a university and are aware of the M&A process from like the perspective of the investment bank. But I am curious to, to learn what was the, the sales process of Fresh and Wild to Whole Foods like from the perspective of the target company and what were you looking for in the sale to Whole Foods? Well, the first Whole Foods bought us twice basically, because the first time they bought us, they pulled out at the 11th hour. Um, so that was in 2002. And we were using an investment bank called Hulahan Loki to represent us. Mm -hmm. And they were very friendly, Whole Foods. They knew my partner very well, the, this guy, Hassan, who is American. Um, and it's a small industry, natural foods. So there was a lot of like goodwill and excitement about the deal. But someone, on, someone in the management team had cold feet literally at the 11th hour. And just as I was planning which house I was going to buy with the money I was, that I was going to get from the deal, the deal fell through. And I woke up one morning, you know, about to celebrate the sale of my first business. And I was told, actually, it's fallen through. I literally couldn't pick myself up off the floor. It was like the worst feeling in the world. Um, but, you know, life has a way of kicking you in the backside every now and again. That was one of those moments. And we had to pick ourselves up and keep running the business. And one of my investors on my board said, Brian, don't, don't worry, like, they'll come back and buy you in the future. And sure enough, two years later, they came back and bought the business in 2004 and they paid 50% more money for it. So at the end of the day, it worked out quite well. Okay, great. It's always yeah. a silver lining. Yeah, exactly. No, it certainly worked out. And it wasn't long then before you started your next venture, Nude Skincare, and ultimately sold Nude Skincare to TLVMH a few years later. So yeah. I'd yeah. be curious, how did this idea come about? And then maybe what were some of the key lessons that you learned from this particular venture? Um, that came about because when I was working at Fresh and Wild, I came across some Irish business people who were very impressed by what I was doing in London with Fresh and Wild and were interested to get involved. But then we had sold it to Whole Foods. Um, and when they heard I'd sold Whole Foods, they asked if I'd be interested in getting involved with a brand called Nude. Um, and that was run by Bono and his brother and Bono's wife, Ali. 
the question was like, okay, given what you know and what you've done at Fresh Wild, could you come up with a brand? Could you come up with a, you know, a product where we could apply, we have the rights to the word nude. Um, and I thought from my Fresh and Wild days, that one area that there was a huge opportunity that was high margin was skincare and cosmetics. And I thought, well, you know, there's a big trend towards natural skincare. And with that brand nude, we could apply it to the, for the trademarks for skincare. And Ali could get involved and be my co-founder and work with me on it. And that's what we did. It was a great business, amazing product. The only issue that we had was that we launched it in 2007, a year before the credit crunch crisis. And we were just expanding into the US in 2008. And we were launching sort of, you know, the sterling to the dollar was, uh, dollar was to like 190 or something to sterling or 180 or something. And so something that was priced for 50 or 40 or 50 pounds in London was being sold for $90 in a Whole Foods store or Barney's. That was quite a high price for natural cosmetics at the time. And so when 2008 Credit Crunch happened, you know, people just stopped spending their money on high end and went from like something they'd spend 80 bucks on for something that's 40. So our sales literally just collapsed in the end of 2008, beginning of 2009. And it was a really tough time. And, you know, we, we ended up selling the business to Louis Vuitton. But, you know, if we had held on to it and got, you know, I think the mistake I made with, with Nude is that I didn't approach the very top VCs in America or London to support it. We, we, we funded the brand ourselves. And there's another guy, Paddy McKillen, who was involved with us. It was Paddy, Bono, Ali and myself. And we would just thought like the best way to fund this was let's not have any interference from any outside investors. Let's just do all this ourselves. It turned out that was a bad strategy. And if we had, you know, what I did with Blue Bottle when, when we moved on to Blue Bottle was to get some of the best VCs involved in the business. And that actually, when things go rough, that's when you need a good VC because they know that this, this is like a one or two year dip, you know, in the cycle of this business. And it's important to keep funding businesses through the bad times. And it's hard if you're funding it yourself to so you have the confidence to do that. Okay, you know, they're great lessons. And from the sale of new skincare to LVMH, was there any major differences in that kind of selling process compared to selling to Whole Foods with Fresh and Wild? Good question. Um, I think it's a, another very... I've done three deals and they've all been pretty friendly um, in terms of the process itself. We, we didn't have a banker. Um, we did it ourselves, but I would say it was a friendly transaction. You did start your first two companies like Fresh and Wild and New Skincare as a founder, but as you mentioned, you went on to Blue Bottle then. It was a slightly different journey as you, I believe, discovered the company when you moved to California and later went on to become CEO. So I'm just wondering how, what attracted you to Blue Bottle and how did you end up getting involved? Well, Blue Bottle, I, I learned the lessons of like I started thinking about like what makes successful search funds. I mean, there have been some amazing search funds that we talked about, you know, my first deal where people have made hundreds of millions of dollars. And I started thinking about, okay, what are the characteristics of this search fund? And I suddenly woke up that the fact that Fresh Mob was kind of like a startup. Nude was a startup. And startups are inherently risky and hard to execute and hard to be successful. And, and, and you know, 95 out of 100 fail, if not more. And so I thought, well, gosh, you know, this is staring me in the eyes. I should just go and buy a business now. I continue to do the thing I love, that criteria stays, but don't do another startup. Go and find a business that you can buy. Go to the best VCs that you know, 
um, put in some of your own money and go and take control of a, of a company. And I stumbled across Blue Ball Coffee. I, I'd go there as a customer, called up the founder, asked him you know, what, he, what his plans were for the, for, for the company. We met for a cup of coffee. And it turned out his major investor who owned a third of the company wanted to sell and was saying to the founder, James Freeman, you should go and find a partner to help you take this business to the next stage. And um, he met with me and his investor said, I think Brian would be a great partner for you because you're a founder, James, you know coffee. Brian's got a great business background. I think you complement each other very well. So he stayed on as CEO. I went in as chair. We bought 85% of the business, 2012. And the rest is history. It was like, you know, James and I both stayed on the business. Um, we grew it into Japan and Korea and Hong Kong and Asia. And in America, we expanded, you know, to New York and Boston, DC, LA. And, um, you know, turned it from a business that was doing 15 million in revenue to a business that was doing 150 million in revenue. When you did join James and, and you ultimately became CEO of Blue Bottle, what kind of attracted you to the business? So you mentioned you had worked with Fresh and Wild and New Skincare as startups, but what attracted you to Blue Bottle in the first place? Was it the, the product? Was it James, the founder? Or could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, great question. There's a lot of things. Obviously, you know, James, the founder, because Blue Bottle would, be, would have been nothing without him. So he's an unusual guy, which again, I think is required for successful startups is that he sees the world differently. And so he was able to imprint his personality on, on the company. And so the type of people he hired, the type of cafes he created, the product focus he had um, was just very different to a Starbucks or even a a third wave coffee company. I mean, you have 3FE now in Dublin where you can get a great cup of coffee and I love Colin. And um, but at the time in 2011, 2010, you know, Blue Bottle really stood out and kind of still does as being a very unique experience in terms of the hospitality you get, the quality of the coffee and, you know, the, the experience that you have in our cafes is, is a really fabulous experience. So again, for me personally, it was, a company I could scale had a lot of you know growth opportunity. A brand that was re- really well known and punched well above its weight, and so you know we were buying. I felt we were buying a brand you know that felt it was ten to twenty times bigger than it really was, and you know I, I was able to. Some of the things that were holding the brand back at the time is it had no systems. It had a very young management team, and I was able to sort of use my contacts from the search fund industry and VCs to actually hire in, you know, CFOs and operators and systems. And once it was able to put the infrastructure in place, we were able to then, we took about a year to 18 months to sort of put some basic infrastructure in place so that we could allow us to grow. And once we had that in place, we were able to scale. One thing I am curious about with Blue Bottle is the fact that it is a unique coffee shop chain in in terms of it's completely differentiated compared to the likes of Starbucks as you mentioned so I have two sides to my question firstly is how did you scale whilst keeping the the core values of the the company and also then given that it was a like a physical retail company what were some of the challenges involved in scaling so could be much harder than just scaling let's say a software company it's a huge question how do you scale without losing your soul um well, I think one of the things I'm quite proud I did was to keep James Freeman 
in place because most most entrepreneurs make a mistake when they buy a company of throwing the baby out with a bathwater. I hate that expression. I can't believe I just said that, but um, but it's true. Sort of, you know, you've got to realize what is great about this company and what was great about this company was James Freeman and you know his skill in creating something that was so unique was a skill that hadn't run its course and you know had plenty of opportunity you know to use James skill in growing the business so I think that's learning how to how to work with a founder and you know comes with lots of issues and lots of um, successes as an entrepreneur coming into a business you've got to learn like the uniqueness of the founder and how important that is um, but at the same time to open his or her eyes to the benefits of bringing in new management with new different styles of thinking and questioning stuff and so you know working as a team to sort of like put in place changes in the business that were allowed the business to grow but changes that you know the ultimate the cup of coffee that you receive um when you walk into fresh mild that actually never changed in fact it got better you know and i think that on that point i would say that people are afraid of change and usually the word james used to say this when you think about the word change it usually comes as a negative but with James and me, it was about how can we change and make it better? So our, our way of evaluating decisions was, would this make, in the same way, you know, the new iPhone is supposed to get better than last year's iPhone. Any change we do in the business, you should ask yourself, will it make the product better, the, you know, the delivery of this product to our customer better? And if it doesn't, don't do it. If you're doing it because it helps you enhance your margins by 5%, um, then you've got to question that. So every everything you do around change should be making your business better. One question in terms of the expansion as well. I know you mentioned going into countries, not just America where it began, but also moving to countries like Japan. I'm just curious, was it very different expanding into Japan and or were there any difficulties? It was expanding? doing business in Japan. It was, I would say it was heavenly. It's just... The culture is so different, like the hospitality culture, and I'm sure this is the same in Ireland and the UK, is that it's sort of very transitory. Sort of a lot of people will come in, get a job in a cafe for three months and then move on to the next thing. Whereas in Japan, people work as a career. So you'd hire someone as a barista. If I went back now, so six years on to the cafes in Japan, I'd probably see some of the same people that started with me in 2015 still working. So the turnover level at Barista is about maybe 3% per annum. And in hospitality in the US, turnover is maybe 100%. Generally in Blue Bottle is about 65%. So you just have a lot more consistency. And then with the Japanese, if you think about how the Japanese think about life, right, you know, this concept of Kaizen is that everything is done with perfection. Everything's done about improving the level of service and so there's just so much care and dedication taken around a cup of coffee. It actually made our offering even better. And then we were able to take our Japanese breezes and successes back to America to show the American operation, like how we could even improve upon what we were doing in America based on what we were doing in Japan. Just on the topic of expansion, I'd like to ask a question on the VC involvement in the expansion of Blue Bottle. I know you mentioned some of the reasons earlier why you did get some VCs involved. I know Index Ventures and Google Ventures were, were just some of them that got involved with the Blue Bottle investment, but I'm just curious, how did you find your experience with the VCs? And was there any particular moment working with Blue Bottle where 
the VCs were particularly important and influential? I think every moment, um, if you pick your VCs well, so as you said, Google Index, also True Ventures, they turned out just to be, I mean, they're very savvy people and they really understand, you know, that it's, it's you take the good with the bad and there's good days and bad days in the business, have the patience to think about long-term and invest long-term in the business. But we were just incredibly lucky um, with those three VCs that, you know, we had nothing but support. Every time we raised around, they were the first to come in and say, okay, we're going to take our pro rata. You know, they were just always anything I needed with help. They were always, and when things went wrong and I needed to be take a walk with my board members on a Sunday afternoon to talk about an issue, they were always there for me. So again, people listening to this, Bill Salmon at Harvard Business School used to always teach this. Um, it's one of the phrases I remember from Harvard Business School. Is it says, with whom you invest is more important than the deal itself. So, you know, you might get an offer to invest in your business that's 30% higher than another VC. But at the end of the day, see through that and realize that you're much better off going with a better VC than the better offer. That's very well put. I have to say, it's certainly amazing to see how you learn so much from your experiences with Nude Skincare and Fresh and Wild and then incorporated that and, and really scaled Blue Bottle to be an amazing and very successful company. In terms of environment then, uh, it's clear you are very passionate about environment and sustainability. Having started an organic food company in Fresh and Wild, like natural skincare products with Nude Skincare, and I saw recently how Blue Bottle announced it will become carbon neutral by 2024. So. Mm-hmm. What do you think are the main challenges and opportunities from an environmental perspective for companies in the consumer and retail space today? Well, I think every company today has to be thinking about climate issues, sustainability issues. Every country has to be thinking about it. Every household has to be thinking about it. But business not only has the responsibility, but it's almost like, again, it's a competitive advantage for a business to have a really effective, innovative strategy around climate. So, yeah, I just think it's, it's maybe at the time when I was doing it, it was less obvious, but, you know, for graduates coming out of Trinity today, like the most obvious opportunity, I feel like it's the, where tech was in 1997, you know, uh, tech crashed in 2000, but in those days of sort of craziness around tech of 97, 98 and present day as well, I feel like where the web was in 1997 is where climate change and sustainability is now in 2021. What I mean by that is it's like, you know, whether it's technology around solar or technology, you know, around renewable energy, it's going to expand rapidly from here. And it's a, for people listening, thinking about things that they want to do as a career, I would highly recommend, you know, getting into space for two reasons. One is I think it's a huge business opportunity and two, never will you have a bigger opportunity to make an impact on on the world and for your family and for future generations than we do right now, this opportunity to either let, you know, see the planet fail or see the planet turn around. And I'm in the sort of let's turn around this planet and get some of the issues that are out there resolved and get working on it really quickly. And that's at an individual level and at a country level. And so I'd highly recommend for people listening to this podcast to think very seriously about the phenomenal opportunities and role that you can play to get into this area of really working on, on the things that are going to really impact climate to solve the issues that we face with our planet. I do think you can, and I think I've proven this, 
I do think you can do something of value that's worthwhile and have impact and make money. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. You know, students are, especially members of this club, you know, they are interested in finance and they are interested in the economy. So I think you can do good and make money. Another kind of slant of advice I'd love to get from you, given your experience and how successful you have been building your own companies is for any of the students listening that aspire to start their own company or even become the CEO of a company one day, do you think getting experience as an operator in a company, doing consulting or going down finance are good places to develop skills early on? Like I know you mentioned developing skills at Guinness and, and Harvard Business Schools. Or are there any particular areas that stand out to you as being the best starting point? I mean, I have to say, if you can get experience operating, you know, it's less glamorous for sure, but I think it will stand to you forever. Like when you think about if you want to be a CEO of a company, you want to either run a company or own a company, learning how to develop skills in the area of communication, listening skills, influencing skills, organization skills, executional skills, like just getting in an operating role, I think is really, really important. I mean, you know, I did spend many years carrying around a Poshton case in Scotland, selling whiskey to the Scots. And sometimes I thought like, what am I doing? This is ridiculous. But now I look back and some of the skills I developed around selling and personal organization and some of those skills have just stood to me so well. But at the time they don't, you know, I think I was earning 13,000 pounds in my first job at Guinness, you know, and my friends were working in the city and they were, you know, they were earning 35,000 pounds, you know, but that, you know, that, that was, that was big money in those days. But if you can be less drawn by the glamour and the package and more like think about like, what you want to be doing long-term, I think it can definitely stand to you to get into an operating role. Before we finish up, I always finish with the lightning round with any of the podcast guests. I'll ask four questions and you can say the first thing that comes to mind. What are your top tips for someone who wants to bring a business idea they have to fruition? Uh, do it. You know, just do it. I mean, dream it, but do it. And I know it sounds very simple, but most people don't do it. And for a company to be successful, in order of priority, what do you think is more important? The founder, the product, the team, or even a mix of all three? A mix of all three. And what are the most important traits of a successful CEO, do you think? I think you have to be okay with being alone because it's a very lonely job. You have to um, have the confidence to, you know, see through your conviction about stuff, um, but also to know, you know, that you have to be a great listener because sometimes what you have conviction about is wrong. Um, so you have to be a brilliant listener, but also you've got to take a decision. And then sometimes you have like three or four different opinions from people and then you make a decision and then you've got to have, you've got to follow through with that and have conviction about it. You've got to be good with failure and uncertainty. And you have to be an amazing leader to be able to show a vision about what you're going, what you're about to do. And you have to, it has to be so strong that people trust in you because if people can't trust you, they're not going to work for you or work with you. Brilliant. And finally, my last question is, what is the highlight of your career to date? I'm meeting my wife, Tara, at Guinness. And uh, I now have three daughters, Olivia, Eve and Orla. I don't think, well, yeah, they wouldn't be here and I wouldn't have been married to Tara if I didn't go and get that 13,100 pound job a year at Guinness. 
Okay, brilliant. Both. <laughs> We're at the end of the podcast, but I want to say thanks a million for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, that'll be interesting and a lot of very valuable lessons and advice to take away for the students. Great questions, Will. Thank you so much. And I'll give you the link to search funds. There's like a search fund case study you can read up on. Yeah, I'd love to help any of your students in any way possible going forward and wish everyone great success with whatever they end up doing. Thanks, Brian. And I'll be sure to include the link in the show notes afterwards. Thanks for that. Okay. Thanks, Will. You have been listening to me, Will O'Callaghan, on the Trinity SMF podcast. You can find more of this podcast on our website, www.trinitysmf.com. And follow us on social media to find out more about podcast releases, upcoming events, and much more.